Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Josh Middleton, who's a guitar player, songwriter, producer, and engineer, best known for his work on and in Silosis and Architects. And between being in two of the best metal bands in the world, he's released Tone Packs with STL. Uh, his solo project just dropped uh, Hollowed Out Planetoid and uh, many, many other things. Josh is one of the busiest guys in the industry. Anyways, I present you Josh Middleton. Josh Middleton, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you've got a lot of stuff going on, to put it lightly. Yeah, I like to be busy. I, I'm, I'm also a bit of a hermit, and I'm one of the few people that, like, with the whole pandemic, pandemic that um, I don't mind, like, just being locked away at home. <laughs> one of my own kind. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, like, it's a really you know, horrible thing that's going on and, and everything. I know you have to say that. Yeah, exactly. You I know. have to say it. Yeah. I have to say it too every time, but yeah. I was talking to somebody yesterday and the words slipped out. I feel like the pandemic's been a blessing. And then I was like, oh shit, I need to not say that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, p- people can just take things out of context. Like we know what you mean, but. Well, I yeah. had COVID so I could say it. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. <laughs> the Morbid Angel album, Blessed or the Sick. Oh yeah. It was, uh, they wrote it about me, but, uh, it, no, I I know I saw the logo and was like, fuck yes. It's almost as if uh, hermits and workaholics were given uh, an opportunity to just be themselves even more. Yeah, kind of. I'm um, I also, though, I'm a dad now and I have a, a one-year-old. Well, she'll be two in April. And uh, that's kind of full on. So, it, you know, lockdown with a child, especially that young, especially when like it first started and she was like, too young to like really interact with but still needed stimulation that was like a challenge that was kind of full on so i actually you know it had friends you know friends without kids be like oh i'm so bored and i'd be like oh if i had the time to just do nothing i'd be so creative right now but it's it's been great like i've had so much time at home with my daughter and it's been amazing um but at the same time like i i, I am able to get stuff done and, and and work but like it's also like trying to keep her entertained and and everything like that but yeah no complaints. I mean, teach her how to edit drums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could. Put her to work. Yeah. Earn that rent. Yeah, for sure. I wish. Start them young. Yeah, yeah. So I guess with that said, having a kid and then all the projects, would you consider yourself good at time management? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I kind of, any time that I, you know, do have to come in this room, like my home studio, office, whatever, um, I do. And I'll, if like we're lucky enough to, have like um my wife's mother is a childminder so she goes to her for a few days so on days that i can work i'm in here like as soon as i can until like dinner time and it'll be yeah flat out so yeah i I think i am kind of good at time management what kind of what kind of schedule do you keep it's just like it sounds like somewhat normal work hours just go in in the morning work your ass off come out at night and do the family thing yeah I, I used to be like when I was a lot younger I used to find that my most creative time was like way into the early hours of the night and I think there's something about like the witching hour like that that's one of the most creative times I don't know if it's just like a bit of like this tiredness and sleep deprivation but I'd always be like maybe it's the silence yeah I, I always felt like I wrote the best stuff at like 4 a.m but um I can't do that do that anymore and uh I mean, I was doing it when my daughter was first born, and my my wife was like, "Look, you need to like come hang out with me uh, in the evenings, like the only time we have to ourselves." I was like, "Yeah, that makes sense." So yeah, I, I keep regular work hours now. You know, I think the musicians and engineers and 
I guess, music people I know that are the most prolific, always putting stuff out, always involved in multiple things. Crazy enough, they tend to have normal people work hours. They all say that, you know, they used to do the crazy hours, but uh, they all end up having pretty much normal work hours, even if it's like start at 10 a.m. and go till 8 p.m. or something. It's not necessarily nine to five. It's still like normal people work days. It's interesting how much more productive people get in the long term when they just stick to a routine, which I think is hard for musicians. Yeah, especially when you have loads of different projects, because I, uh, aside from being in two bands, like one of the things I've been working on recently with no real plan on it, like when it'll be released is like a impulse response pack, which is just something that I just do for the fun of it. Cause I, I nerd out over guitar tones and, uh, I want to have them all at my disposal. And because I have a family, I can't be in this room cranking up cabs and reamping through all the cabs. So if I have like my impulses, I can do it silently and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I have like all these kind of different projects. So the only thing that as much as I'll be working flat out, it's just like, when do I work on which project? That project's something I haven't done in months, but <laughs> it's just to give you an idea. But How do you determine that? Like what you're going to work on? How does that get divvied up? Kind of just like what I'm excited by, but I think... I asked, I get asked a lot about like what happens when you get like writer's block and I just don't get it, but that's because I'll just switch to a different project. So I guess I don't, maybe I don't really feel like I've had writer's block, but if I'm writing stuff for architects and then I'm just, nothing's coming out, then I'll just, we'll stop. And then I'll like write a solosis song or I'll just work on like production stuff or I'll just start nerding out with gear and making Kemper profiles or whatever it might be. Um, so it's, I, I never feel like I have writer's block, but I just switch between stuff and that keeps things fresh, I guess. So like you sit down and you just start writing and then then you know what it's for or do you sit down to write for a certain project? I'll sit down to write for a certain project and the easiest distinction for me is, well, it's just picking up like which guitar I pick up. So I've got like a guitar there with that's in like the G sharp tuning that I can then tune down to the f-sharp tuning or tune up to a c-sharp but it's the architect's guitar and then i've got solosis guitar so it's kind of that kind of just does it without me even realizing it's just like if i think all right i'm gonna write for architects i'll have that guitar so you're just already in the mode yeah i guess so. it's not even something i really think of i'm just like i'm gonna write architect stuff and architects is obviously the uh you know my main focus for everything that i do but i feel like if i spent all the time i have writing for that i'd just get burnt out and i feel like doing different projects keeps me fresh and better for whichever project I'm doing. When you come back, you've got a new perspective, you've been writing something different. So yeah, I I think having multiple projects is really beneficial personally. What's weird about it? It's a C sharp standard and then the lowest string will go down to a G sharp. So it's kind of like uh, what Mastodon and I think Neurosis do, but it's just one note lower. So if you play a regular power chord, it'll be an octave. Mm, that sounds cool. And then there's another tuning where that low string goes down to an F sharp. So then the low two strings are, are both an octave apart open. So they're both F sharps. And then you can tune it all the way up and you can go to drop B or some stuff's in C sharp standard. So the rest of the strings, for the most part, stay the same. But the low string is down to a G sharp and that's the most common architect's tuning. I've done the octave, octave, regular, the rest of the way up thing before. I actually love that. It's really, really cool. 
Yeah, it's fun. It's something that like Tom used to experiment with and, and started using. And especially like there's a when you chug, especially in the G sharp tuning, you've got a minor seventh interval for the low two strings. And if you chug open, it's obviously not a power chord. So it has a very distinct I, I think it's just instantly recognizable as architects because of that tuning. And like people don't just chug on a minor seventh that low. It's just it just it's a weird thing that just is so I associate with architects, especially like a song uh, Early Grave that they did in like two thousand nine. There's just a riff that's like jung 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 just chugging on that interval and it's just uh yeah, really distinctive. So yeah, that's Tom's doing. I think that there's a reason a really good reason for why anytime you go to an actual music school, you have to learn piano just as a basic requirement. And it's considered the, the instrument for songwriters and composers. Every other instrument is considered secondary to that, even guitar. There's just something about the way it's laid out that makes it more, uh, all-encompassing i guess for writing oh yeah everything sounds great on a piano as well and then you transfer it to a guitar sometimes and you're like oh it doesn't sound that great now <laughs> so i guess it can just make sad things sound like 10 times more sad on a piano also i feel like with piano there's less of a less of gymnastics you've got to do mentally with where notes are it's just all logical yeah and there's only one of each yeah one of each where does uh engineering come into this for you yeah that that's something that i got into ages ago i think we might have run into each other you know over 10 years ago on the sneak forum at some point because uh, we probably have around yeah 2004 is like when i or 2005 maybe is when i started going on the andy sneak forum religiously because i just got obsessed can you believe it's been that long that forum used to be so great and now it's just yeah not what it used to be well the crazy part is it stopped being great in about 2006 when andy stopped posting in it and those of us who were there still talk about it it's gonna be 20 years soon yeah that's crazy yeah yeah i, I just got obsessed with like i'm like a huge huge fan of music and back in the day i'd buy loads of albums that's like i was just obsessed with and i'd always see andy sneep and colin richardson on the best sounding albums. so i'd just aware of those guys and then uh when it when solosis was uh, you know, starting out, when you want to record a demo, local studios like just don't know what to do with heavy music for the most part, at least, you know, back in 2003. So I was just like, well, I'm just going to buy some basic stuff and just do this myself. So the first two EPs we released, I self-produced um, and mixed and I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, I just got into it really early on, especially like guitar tones i mean there's there's still so much mystery mystery around andy sneep's guitar tones to me like i know so much of all the details i've read every forum post but he just to me just gets like just the most insane perfect metal tones for me there's something magical about them yeah i mean it's it's i'm sure his raw tracks i'm sure he's barely eqing them like in this mix like it's probably just like i've seen like a picture of a mix like a screenshot of like a Cradle of Filth mix that I think someone, Dan, I can't remember his name, did a piece on this mix that Sneep did for like Sound on Sound magazine. And the picture is just low and high pass filtering on just like one notch at like 700 or something. And like, I can't make guitar sound as good as that with essentially no EQ, really. It's, it's the no EQ challenge. I'm sure he does use EQ at like other times, but yeah, like I, I, I obsess over all that stuff. Well, I know there was a time period where all the badass 
metal guitar tone producer guys were were uh, competing as to who could get the sickest tones without EQ, just like straight off the mics and cabs. And that Cradle of Filth could have been in that era. I believe it may have been in that era. I could be wrong, but there was a yeah, there was a specific period of time. Yeah, there was a specific period of time where that was like a, a badge of honor. If you could have a finished guitar tone straight off the cab. Yeah, yeah. It's something that not many other people or your average listener really cares about. But for, nope. for those of us who just like <laughs> nope. that kind of stuff, yeah, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's fun. They couldn't care less. I mean, he could do it with a crank and make it sound great. Yeah. He reamped guitars on your record, right? The first. Yes. Was that a Randall? Do I remember that right? Ultra XL? I don't remember, <laughs> but probably. I don't know. All I know is he saved our ass. And the guitar sounded great. Yeah, the, the guitar sounded amazing on that. Yeah, he did it all on a Sunday afternoon. That's all I know. He didn't give us many details. Right. It was just we just sent him the files, and he sent them back, and that that was it. Wow. It was a, it was just a favor to Colin, basically. Yeah. Were you there for the mix for that? Yes, I cool. was in London. Colin's amazing. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, I wish he'd do. I wish he would do a nail the mix, but I don't think he will. He seems elusive. There's nothing about him online. There's no like. Mm -mm. Yeah, no, he does not like to share publicly. Um, it's kind of like his ethos. But uh, man, I've never really seen anything like it since. I, and I've seen a lot of amazing people. I don't want to say better or worse or anything like that, but I've never really quite seen it the way he does it. Was he like hands on? Because I I know he's always had engineers mix with him and he's kind of like a yes he's hands-on okay at least when i was there the engineer that worked with him was a pro tools operator mostly so colin didn't really fuck with pro tools too much remember this was 2006 so i'm sure that that changed at that point in time he was not messing with pro tools so this guy matt hyde the british matt hyde not the matt hyde that did slayer and hybrid and yeah yeah not that guy both Matt Hyde's are awesome, though. They're both great engineers. The British Matt Hyde was his assistant, and he was the fastest Pro Tools operator I've ever seen up to that point in my entire fucking life. I couldn't believe how fast this guy was. It was one of the, I'm sure you've had those moments where like, you think you're good at something, and then you get around someone that's actually good at something. It's like, oh, yep. oh, so this is what level they're playing at. But Colin operated the board and the outboard and all that stuff. He, he mixed it for sure. He takes his time. Yeah. So I hear. Yeah. I've heard stories about, you know, 10, 10 days on a drum tone or 10 days setting up guitars. Mm -hmm. The trivium drums he did at my house took three weeks. Right. Yeah. Three weeks, five days just to place the kick drum somewhere in the room. <laughs> Thing is, and not, not to his discredit, but like that kick probably got like, sample in hearts like a fair amount i'm sure it got <laughs> you know? replaced but you know what it sounded great yeah sure <laughs> it was a great sounding natural kick it, he spent three weeks three and a half weeks on my mix and keep in mind that was at a major studio in london with a neve getting paid day rate plus what he was getting paid that was like the final little bit of labels being stupid with bands <laughs> and the amount of money that would give them. Yeah. And he had Scott Atkins, who's we've recorded with a few times. He did the behemoth and what's it called? Evangelion. Evangelion. Oh my God. I can't say that word. Evangelion. Yeah, that's the one. Don't forget Andy Sneap. 
Yeah, sure. Like burn my eyes and. Yeah, Andy was one of his first proteges. Sneep is a product of Sneep, but uh, Colin mentored him, or I mean, you know, I'm sure they have their own definition. Gave him a bit of a break, maybe. Yeah, gave him a break. I've read so many Sneep interviews, like this is embarrassing. But like, I think yeah, doing Burn My Eyes was <laughs> was like like Colin got Andy on board to help out with that, and like he made a bunch of contacts whilst he was out in the states. So I hear. <laughs> Probably took some clients. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's gonna happen. I heard that Colin originally got hired because uh, Scott Burns was on his way out and Roadrunner needed somebody to kind of basically take the torch and run with it. Do everything, yeah. Scott Burns was yeah. the guy. Yeah, he was, the, he was the man. And apparently he was seriously, like if you notice, he just disappeared from the scene completely. He has like a whole other life, whole other career. Like he dropped production completely. And so Colin got brought in by Roadrunner to basically become the next Scott Burns to keep that going. And so he got flown to Florida to basically learn what the hell he was doing. Then Colin became the dude. Oh, so how early on was that then? That's like pre like heart work and stuff. Like really? Yeah, early. yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know. But it's just, it's just interesting, man, how influential Roadrunner is and has been. It's influential in ways that people don't even realize, such as discovering Colin Richardson before Colin Richardson was the Colin Richardson we know and love and uh, training him, basically. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Foresight. Now, I could have my facts completely wrong, too, so I'm ready to admit that. I like that version of the story. Uh, it's very cool, though, yeah. That's crazy. I, I had no idea. So you're just a fan of records that you like the way they sounded. You notice that the records that sounded great to you magically ended up being done by same person and people. And may, that's kind of what helped you understand that production was a cool thing or like a necessary, a necessary part of the equation. I mean, like early on, like as a like really young kid, like 12 years old, I remember buying the corn VHS and that's, they talk about Ross Robinson and how integral he is to like corn's, sound i guess like from an engineering mix point of view but obviously as a producer and really getting under like the hood of what corn did so that was like the first time i was really like aware of like a producer but then the more i got into just like the sound of records i liked i think the first time i was really aware of colin richardson was bloodthirst cannibal corpse which still sounds amazing to this day that mix is incredible and then annie sneep started just doing more and more stuff he did machine head that testament first strike still deadly and life was just breathing i just remember just seeing like andy sneep come up so much i was like oh yeah what a surprise this album sounds good who who produced it or mixed it is either andy sneep or colin richardson and then i just go on the internet and try and find out about them and what gear they're using and whatever i could and when did you actually start recording other people or yourself oh straight away really just because i wasn't good at it <laughs> like the first silosis EPs don't sound great, but at the time in 2005 and six, you know, you could either go to like a local studio and most local studios were probably still not like operating pro tools or like quantizing drums. And it was just like, you go in there as a band play live still as in now sorry, or at, at that time. Sorry. Right. Okay. So I'm just imagining that I'm in 2005 or to 2004 and like local small time studios were still just like an ADAP machine. And like yeah. some of them would have, at least near us, like some of them would have like a computer with Pro Tools, but they weren't 
really proficient enough to know what to do or to be honest actually one, one time Solos have recorded like a demo like a really old demo when it came to like mixing it and we just tracked it live in like one day at the end of the day i just pulled out i think it was a, a pissy crazy cd i was like can you make it sound like this and he listened to it, it was like those drums aren't real they're all sample replaced you do it like this on the computer i was like oh so from then on i was like right he does it. this guy actually knows what he's doing but i can figure this out so I bought like a set of just drum mics after that, like one of those little Shaw kits that's got like a Beta 52 and like three SM57s with clamps for the toms and just some cheap overhead. So I just would record the Solosis stuff at our drummer's house, just in the room that he practiced drums. And then I'd go home and find what samples uh, from the Alasis D4, <laughs> the same ones that Sneep used and blend them in and that sort of stuff. But uh Fat yeah. City. Yeah, Fat City, Piccolo, 25. <laughs> that was an integral period of time. Yeah. I went to the UK in 2014 to produce a band at a local studio in the middle of nowhere, and I felt like I had, was walking into 2003. Like, it was all the same gear and computer. And I don't mean, like, classic gear or anything. I mean, it was the shitty gear that I had bought in 2003 when I didn't know what I was buying and the same DAW, same computer, same everything. It was very strange. It was so decrepit that I had to just use my laptop. I couldn't use anything that they, wow. that they had there. So I flew across the ocean to produce something on my laptop. But um, the thing you said about local studios, not knowing how to do metal. What's interesting about that is what I remember is that it wasn't just the shitty studios that didn't know how it was also the super fancy ones because metal bands, at least around here, would go to these big ass studios that bands like Seven Dust or something or the Black Crows, you know, big Atlanta bands, pre-Macedon, would go to and be like, yeah, this is an amazing place. Brendan O'Brien did corn here. We got the weekend rate and they'd spend like $5,000 on three songs spend the entire weekend there and it would come out sounding like the worst piece of shit you've ever heard in your life because they got some engineer who didn't know how to do metal who didn't give a shit who's just like the runner basically also also like the biggest like part of like making a record sound good is just getting the performance especially for like metal stuff like the kind of stuff that i was playing it's, if it's technical you can't do it in a weekend you need like nope. a weekend for the drums you need like you know, a week for just quad tracking guitars and that it's not going to sound good if you've just and that's played live fast. Yeah, exactly. It's, that's, I mean, I'm talking about an EP or like a demo, but yeah, it's that, that kind of stuff was like, well, if we want this to sound good, if I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but if I have all the time in the world, at least it'll be tight and I can get there in the end. I'll just keep fiddling until it sounds halfway decent. So that was my objective. Yeah. Exactly. But that also, your advantage there is even if that engineer at the big studio knew the gear, maybe had a formal education recording, if they didn't know the style, yeah. no matter what, it would never sound good. So even if you say you didn't know what you were doing, you still knew the style. Yeah, exactly. Which I think for producing metal, it's a combination of performances, obviously some recording technique, obviously, but then also knowing what the hell the it's supposed to sound like in the first place yeah yeah that that's really important having some idea of that 
it's like not supposed to sound good with the amount of noise there is in the signal and how every single frequency is like stepping on every other single frequency and then limited to the max and in your fucking face there it shouldn't sound good it's like carving noise out of noise oh just heavy guitars i mean like just the 5150 just takes up all the mid-range <laughs> the whole of your mix you've left with like tiny bits either side so yeah it's it's really hard it's like a su- noise tsunami basically exactly yeah when do you find time to practice guitar or do you still practice guitar uh yeah i've actually just got back into like really practicing recently it's something that i do like if my wife's gone to bed or i'm just hanging out with my daughter in the lounge and she's playing i can just have a guitar on my lap a practice sample and i'll just be practicing like licks and and just going over scales but yeah I, I did most of my practicing when i was like uh the the glory years for me of like when i really like knuckled down to practice when i was like 15 to 17 and i do probably only like an hour a day at most of like properly practicing so i just sit with the keyboard i had in my room and put the metronome on and i do uh, the modes starting on like f major alternate picking everything up one down the next till i get to the octave and that's all i practiced like for a year not all i practiced but that was like the main thing just because it was the theory of learning the mode shapes was going in but at the same time just alternate picking every note and trying to do that as cleanly as possible was all going in so yeah that that's kind of like yeah around around that time is when i did most of the woodshedding and i just try and maintain a standard ever since (laughs) How many days a week would you do that? At least like the weekdays. Like I come home from school and I do like an hour or so of that. And it wasn't like regimented, like, oh, I'm going to do guitar practice. Like I was excited to practice guitar. Like I wanted to be like, be able to play all that, you know, whatever. I was, I actually like really got into like death metal when I was like 14, 15. So I was listening to like Cannibal Corpse and Morbid Angel. So I... I really want to like shred, but I wasn't into like shred guitar. I was just into like extreme music where it was like just aggressive. So I had to learn how to pick every note and I want to be able to go like all that kind of stuff. So I would, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd just be excited to practice that much. Uh, and I'd just be just doing it every day. Well, at least when I came home from school. That kind of music's fun to play. Yeah. Yeah. Like just it's such a good thing to like get into as a young player. Like, because I already had when I first started playing guitar, I got in, I was into like Radiohead and Oasis when I was learning on an acoustic. So I got like the chords out of the way, the whole songwriting perspective. But then, then when you get into extreme stuff, like you know, tremolo picking and just trying to riff as technical as possible, all that kind of stuff, it's a good way around. You know, you see a lot of players these days are just trying to get into like technical guitar playing, but they don't know like an E major chord. <laughs> I want to be careful with what I say because I don't want to knock young players at all because I think that uh, that there's greatness in every generation, um, but priorities shift always. And I do think that one thing that is kind of missing is the basics because the internet makes it possible to see what the most advanced things in the world are and the best players in the world you can just watch their shit immediately you don't have to hunt for it it's there it's very very easy to just skip over the basics and so you get a lot of guitar players who can do very seemingly amazing things but who don't have a foundation in much which on one hand why does that matter if they're really, really great at something. But on the other hand, um, I feel like that leads to one trick ponies. 
Yeah, it's something that I, I think I see a lot. I used to teach guitar like years ago and I'd always, yeah, see kids who wanted to like just know how to sweet pick. But if you were to just give them like an acoustic guitar and just go like play me like a song, they couldn't. They wouldn't just like the basic chords or even like bar chords. They just like skipped over what I would consider like essential guitar playing and just going straight into like riffing and and trying to do sweet picking, which is fine if that's what they want to do. That there's no rules and you don't have to do that. But um, to be like a well-rounded player, if someone wants to come to me for lessons and learn from scratch, I'd be like, look, I know you want to get to this point, but you have to go through like these like stepping stones first. I was probably like eight when I started playing guitar and still in primary school. And I, luckily for me at the time, I was just listening to like Radiohead, Oasis were big, the first Foo Fighters record. So I didn't even really know about sweet picking. So like, I'm glad that I didn't kind of skip <laughs> over just the basics of songwriting. But I kind of compare like guitar playing in some ways to skateboarding, which is like what the only other thing that I was into when I was younger. So I either skateboard and play guitar and there's something about the accomplishment of like just learning how to like shred or do like a really crazy lick is just the same as learning a trick and i i got into like shreddy guitar playing even though i wasn't into like shredders like steve i and that kind of stuff or i don't know what else like dream theater that wasn't the sort of stuff i listened to but i still wanted to be able to do it but it was more just like just like the feeling of doing a kickflip it's like wow i feel like it's cool to be able to do it, but I'm not going to apply kickflips into, <laughs> I don't know what other aspects of my life, but yeah, there's, there, there's kind of two aspects. And I, I ended up getting really into like guitar playing, even though I wasn't like, you know, shredder, quote unquote, shredder guitar stuff, even though I didn't, didn't listen to it. So like the adrenaline junkie side of guitar playing. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, I always wanted to make it, you know, mel melodic and musical. And I, I kind of like quite well known for sweet picking, which is kind of, not, I'm not embarrassed by it, but I, you know, I was never into like Malmsteen and that kind of neoclassical. Like, I started using sweet picking because I got into Demi Borgir and like they had all these like really interesting chord changes and like moving these minor chords around. And I wanted to be able to outline those chords. If you do big chords on distortion, it sounds bad. And we don't have a keyboard player, so it's like right, I'm going to write these kind of like sweet picking loops that outline what chord we're moving to. And that's how I got like really into sweet picking because it was more about just utilizing it as a as a musical thing as opposed to just shred for the sake of it. And it sounds like those sounds like those sweep ideas are basically riffs too. Yeah, kind of. I mean I do do solos a lot as well, so I'm I'm not gonna pretend that I don't like just just go off and play <laughs> solos. But yeah, for the most part, you're just playing rhythm and they they tie into each other, like especially if you practice picking every note. So I uh yeah, rhythm playing it's something that I was obviously hugely into. Like when I started playing Battery by Metallica, as soon as I got that down, that that's when like, I was like, ah, right. I've like leveled up and now I can essentially do anything. Cause once you get that fast gallop, you you're set. So uh, yeah, rhythm player for sure. But man, I really hope that young listeners are paying attention to the fact that every awesome player we've had on here has said that, they got good at rhythm through learning Metallica songs. Mm. It keeps popping up. Like everybody says it. It goes into the the recording thing as well, because I know like I, the first bit of recording guitar I had was a four track and I'd listen to Injustice for All all the time. And I'd be like, well, I didn't, I didn't think people recorded on computers when I heard that. And they weren't really. I, was, I think I got Injustice for All in like 99, 98 or something. So you would listen to that and be like, well, it's that tight. And I guess he's played it. And I, 
like that. That's why it sounds like that. There was no like, oh, I guess, you know, you can like copy and paste stuff. And I'm sure there are ways to, you know, punch in when they're recording Injustice for All. But just knowing that was like, well, that sounds tight. And the only way I can make my guitar sound tight like that is if I play it like that. And which I think the more you know about music production these days and everyone uh, has access to it and gets into recording, um, the amount of like fake guitar playing out there where people just copy and paste stuff. Not that I don't utilize that when I'm producing. Like, obviously, like, I'm not saying like I just play a song from start to finish and there's no edits or anything, but people really rely on it. But if you grew up in like the 90s and you listened to Metallica and you heard how tight that is, at that time, you're like, well, I guess he's just that good a guitarist. And I guess I need to be that good if I want it to sound that tight and I'm recording on a tape four track. There is one counter argument, and I'm not sure how true it is, but hear me out. There's kids. And I know this because they're not kids anymore, but like I've recorded some people like this who, you know, they were teenagers in the mid 2000s or something. So they grew up um, with bands that were already being edited, being the famous bands, bands that were already pro-tooled basically um, with constructed riffs and all that. Like, you know, remember the Necrophagus record, Epitaph came out in 03 or something. So there was already music that was constructed in the studio out there. And I think that, you know, there was no nail the mix back then. There was no information on how to record uh, metal. And so they believed that this is how you actually play. And so then you got this generation of people like the Alex Rudingers of the world who were just the next level up on the technicality scale because they thought that that's what you actually do. Kind of like what you're saying about James Hetfield. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of, it's kind of the same point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not like that old. That, that was, I was still like a teenager in the early 2000s, but uh, yeah, you, you've got a really good point. I, it's, it is kind of similar, but yeah, I, I was still naive enough to think that a lot of those records, people were like that tight as well. Like I think like the Necrophagus record. I still think they are. They are. Yeah. Okay, that, that's maybe not the best example because like when you watch them live and I've seen them live, they are like insane. I believe that the Necrophagus record was constructed and that they also are as that type. Yeah. Like, so I believe that it was constructed for artistic reasons to make it sound inhuman. Yeah. But then we toured with them in 07. It was like, oh, they actually sound inhuman. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I think I played the show with them in like 2006. And they like, it was like a show that they were just flying into headline and like, they just used all our gear. And I was just like, and, and it was insane just hearing them. It's believable. Yeah. It was like some metal fest at the Camden Underworld. They just like roll up and they're like, what amps have you got? And like, I was like, well, I've got a PV triple X and the other guy's got an angle powerball. They're like, they're, I think they want, both wanted to use the powerball. I was like, come on, man. The triple X is underrated. Don't, don't knock it. But <laughs> there's another plus to like being a guitarist in like the, you know, door generation and growing up like recording like daw door recording guitars and like recording di's though because that's like really helped me because i knew that i was always ahead of the beat and i had that i had to really work on that because i could physically i could see that my di's weren't where i wanted it to be and as a, instead of just quantizing it i'd be like okay well i'm i'm just rushing so yeah just recording yourself every day and just like really building in that metronome is super integral as well so Sitting there and trying to record a riff or a solo that's slightly above your ability and working it up with the click and then playing it over and over and over and over and over until 
you can not only play it right, but it sounds amazing recorded. That That's practicing for sure. I got to say that that's when I got best at guitar too, was once I started recording myself, even before screens, like back when I just had like a, a four track tape thing, immediately started getting better. The moment I could hear myself recorded back, I was like, whoa, I suck. I, I need to not suck anymore. <laughs> I need to suck less. I started to suck less quickly just because there's nothing like hearing yourself back and hearing reality. And then, yeah, once you could see it on the screen, then it's even crazier. How did you go about actually adjusting your feel? Like, how did you think about playing more on or behind the beat? Yeah, I, I was always ahead of the beat. So I was just always focused on just trying to be almost slower than the click. And that's something that I'm always like, I'm sometimes like even at shows I'm kind of playing a little game in my head like can I just be like a split second behind the kick drum I'm probably not but it's just something that I'm just really aware of and I'm just kind of like you just anticipate it or even like you might get projects I don't know like a project that wasn't recorded to a click and you just have some drums and you just want to like jam over it you can still I think just even if you've spent all your time practicing to like a really regimented click as long as you've been really paying attention to your timing even if like you're playing on something that's not to a click and like a drummer's you know if you're not playing to a click live you can still just lock in better because you're not thinking about yourself you're thinking about the drums or you're thinking about the other players and playing to them so it's it's not necessarily about yeah playing to a click i guess it's just more about just not playing to yourself and your own just like trying to find the tempo on someone else as opposed to it coming from you those original Slipknot records with Joey, the way he would rush the hell out of the beat was part of why they're awesome. People equal shit. Like the first track, like down down and then the blast beats are quick, and then they're even quicker, like the next second. And it's just like they just sound pissed off and like they're intense in the studio. So yeah, I think it works for Slipknot for sure. I love those records. Yeah, that blast beat, like that blast beat, like ramps up like twenty BPM in the middle of it. Yeah. I, I honestly, I've genuinely just listened to those records recently. Just like, they're still great records. They're great. I love with Dave Lombardo when he speeds up in the middle of a fill. It's awesome. If for some reason when he does it, it's awesome. When some local band I'm recording would do it, I, I'd be like, God, you suck. Play in time. But when I'd, uh, when you hear Dave Lombardo do it, it's like, fuck yeah, this bumps up the energy. Yeah, I think I think you know that if you if you wanted to, you probably could hold back. But like, you can just appreciate the fact that he's he's just raging, and that's just exciting to hear. There's an energy to that that older music. I think that uh, I have yet to hear in modern day. I think just because recording is a lot more clinical now. It's a lot. It's a lot more clinical. It's not just fucking play it as well as you can. Boom, the end. Ten songs, one day, over those death metal albums for instance were pretty low budget i mean they were still using like triggers on that stuff weren't they i, mean, yeah. I feel like it's the same kick and snare on blessed are the sick and arise and all that scott burn stuff so yeah they probably didn't spend that long yeah oh no they were definitely using triggers man they try uh gene hoagland and reiner tried to explain to me how they did the midi sample replacement for kicks back then yeah fuck that shit like ancient computers as well I don't get like yeah. how there's loads of records like for, like The Gathering by Testament, again, a sneak point, which is all done uh, analog. 
And he's just like, yeah, it's just like sampled. But it's like, how are you automating? Like all those like Lombardo snare rolls are so, I mean, it's just the real snare, but like it goes seamlessly between like the sample and the feel stuff. Yeah, I, I don't get like how, how they used to do sample replacement, especially when it was done really well and you couldn't tell that it was like every sample was just coming out like a machine gun. I don't know. I'd like to know. Yeah, same. But it, it just goes to show that, you know, people keep wanting to upgrade their gear, upgrade their gear, get the latest thing. There's a lot of really great producers who haven't upgraded their computer, for instance, since like 2005, which uh, makes it really hard for us to do a nail the mix with them because we can't capture a video out from them. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, that aside, I completely understand why they're doing that. It works. And it's not like their records didn't sound great in that era. So why fuck with something that works? They don't get the benefit of new plugins or anything, but they don't need them either. How do you feel about new gear? Yeah, I'm into it. I I like I like trying out new stuff. Um, the latest thing that I got was Flatline submission, and like that's something that recently I'm just like super excited about. I'm just like, oh, yeah, Erman's plugin. Yeah, it's just like my drum transients are back. Thank you. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not like a super gearhead and I'm genuinely like, feel like I'm got a lot better at engineering and producing and, and, and mixing and that kind of stuff. But I'm so, so bad with technology. You would not believe like I, even when I first joined architects and like me and Dan were like demoing a song, I would kept going to like top left corner and clicking file save. He was like, you know, you can press like command S. I was like, oh, cool. That's save some time. <laughs> so like i am really bad with technology but when it comes to plugins yeah I, I like checking out what's coming out and getting my small brain around them when i see people online who are not in the game arguing about gear based off of spec sheets gear that they've never used like converters things like that based off of a youtube video where some guy did some test or arguing about plugins they've never used or whatever off of because of some test that they read or watched or some spec sheet um, where guys who actually make records every day will say, no, this stuff sounds different. And people will say, there's no difference. Look at this spec sheet. It's all the same. It's like, no, it sounds different. No, that's impossible. It can't sound different. The spec sheet doesn't lie. Have you seen those kinds of arguments? I mean, I I don't get into them. I have a similar thing, and it's it's, it's slightly different, but with um, the active pickup thing, because I personally use I use Fishman's like I like the active voicing, and like that whole argument against using uh, active pickups because they're not dynamic is something that you see. Just it's almost like people are just copying and pasting That's a it. Myth. They're hearing it from so. I mean, I'm not saying that, that like obviously. If you look at an EMG or a Fishman, the signal is kind of clipped and stuff. But that you see people just regurgitating that stuff just because they've heard it somewhere, and like they're probably I don't like sounding like a dickhead, but like that you you might go on like their page and like they're they're like still a beginner player. So like, can you really do you really know tone if you've not been playing that long? And like, nope. I like the active sound because. I personally want every note to sound the same. I don't want any dynamics in my rhythm playing. And like, I've got a good right hand, but if the compression makes that sound even tighter, then I'm all for it because, you know, James Hetfield always had a good tone with actives. And like most of my favorite records are recorded with actives pickups. So like, yeah, I, I think 
it's weird when so many people go, oh, they're not dynamic enough. And obviously there's all types of different metal, but for me, like, especially like in like the thrash stuff and solosis, it's like, yeah, I, if, if I'm quad tracking, I don't want there to be any inconsistency. I want every single pick attack to be identical. I don't want any dynamics in the, in the, in the, in the heavy guitar tone anyway, you know? You, you know what else? There's a whole range. There's active pickups that are more dynamic and passive pickups that are less dynamic. There's super high output passive pickups that are super compressed sounding. So that's why I say it's a myth. Like, yes, there are active pickups that limit the dynamics and have that compression, but there's some that kind of don't too. So when, when people start uh, making those arguments, it's like, do you even know what you're talking about? And I think you're right. If you've only been playing guitar six months, do you even know tone? Yeah, I, I don't mean to sound like really, I don't know, disheartening or like nasty saying that. But I mean, yeah, like learning, that that just seems like the sort of thing that in those instances, someone's just like read it somewhere and is going to try and pass it off as information. But yeah, like to really know like the difference between actives and passives and like what you really appreciate about them, you've got to be playing a long time and probably have some recording knowledge to like really know what you're listening for when you hear it back and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I stay out of all those kind of arguments. I've learned that it's not, not worth it. It's a good thing. There's room for both. I like passives and actives, but I choose to play uh, actives or active. I mean, Fishman's are sort of like, it's powering the technology as opposed to the output or whatever. I can't remember, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of like anything else, just like DAW choice or whatnot, once you've been doing things for a while, you get to know what your preferences are and what suits your workflow best, what feels best in your hands, and uh, you gravitate towards certain things for certain reasons. And I, I really think that it's not a matter of better or best or anything like that. It's more about what allows you to do your best work. Yeah. It's going to be different for everybody. Yeah, and at the end of the day, the, all this stuff, like the most important thing is like, how good is the song? <laughs> It's such a like distraction, isn't it? Like all the gear stuff, but total distraction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, we're we're uh, working on a course right now with uh, Chris Crummett. We're working on the pre-production section, mm. and uh, he said something that just stuck out, which was um, the pre-production is just as important as any other part of the process because if the song isn't awesome, what's the point of the production in the first place? Yeah. Why are you even doing it if the song's not awesome? Yeah, I mean, I, you're just always looking to enhance the song, aren't you? Like with production, that's that's what's fun about it. But it's, you, your original idea's got to be the best it can be in the first place. So how do you know when a song's good enough? Um, I find myself being a lot more critical these days. And since joining Architects and working with Dan, who, you know, will like edit and rearrange songs that I've written, it was kind of challenging to begin with because i hadn't really had that and i had someone just like completely like strip apart a song i'd done before and i was kind of like oh this is a bit of an adjustment but it's definitely beneficial uh, and i really appreciate that so yeah I, I think in architects it's easy because i say easy but I, I still spend a lot of time writing songs but i don't analyze as much i don't agonize as much over the song structure because i'll get like you know a verse chorus in the middle eight section and just give it to Dan and be like, right. Cause it might come back completely different sometimes. So there's no point in me agonizing over it. So I, I find that really beneficial in like working with someone else, which I didn't used to do before really. 
I'd always just lock myself away and write songs on my own. So, so you had to learn how to collaborate, basically? Yeah, essentially. And I think that's like genuinely really good for me, like growing and learning as a musician. So like it's something that I'd like to do more of and collaborate more with producers as well, which you know get more of an out, outsider perspective. But yeah, sorry, your question, how do I know when a song's done? Like With Architects, between the two of us, I feel like we're both kind of like producers uh, and can uh, we can get there between us. The same with Silosis, but I think I'm just more open to the idea of like not thinking like, oh, no, this is perfect. Like, could it be better? Could someone else's perspective help that? So, yeah, it's taken me a while, but that's kind of where I'm at now, like in kind of outwardly probably looking for a producer. More so for just the song, the song stuff than... Um, production and that kind of thing because like i've recorded enough albums to know that i can record guitars here and get the takes and performances i want and you know if if nolly's mixing it then he can reamp it that kind of thing or whoever's mixing it zach who did the most recent architects record zach savini yeah it's very quick and easy mix process but yeah i'm I'm just i'm open to collaborating a lot more these days so yeah it's a tough learning curve to learn how to trust teammates and let things go but at the same time you're working with some pretty great people who are at the top of the craft, basically. So do you think that that's kind of part of it too? Like you can trust them because they are awesome. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. Like um, when I first started writing for Architects, obviously in Architects, Tom was like the main guy that wrote all all the music. And I know Dan was involved, but I, I don't know to what degree. And I think it was more so on the, the late latter albums with Tom. So... Yeah, I, I hadn't really heard like Dan write stuff. Obviously, he was you know a drummer, so I kind of is a drummer, but obviously writes a, a lot of music now. So at the time, I you know trusted his opinion, and he's you know he started the band, and he's a very you know musical guy. I just trusted that you know it was his band, and like, I'm the new guy, so it needs to go through his funnel to like make sure that it works, and just to be like a quality control check as well but yeah like he very quickly just you know started writing more and more and like you know writing synth stuff or writing everything you know you you can write anything now on a laptop without having to pick up an instrument you know i just think about you're working with him you know it's going to be at least some degree of really good say you send it off to nolly you know it's going to come back good you send it off to servini you know it's going to come back good I feel like there's got to be some level of confidence that even if it takes a few tweaks, everything's still going to come back some level of really awesome. Oh yeah. That, and that's and like nothing. There was never any issue with like quality or, or anything like that for sure. It was more just things weren't as they were when they left my, my studio or like, you know what I mean? Just that, just as, as an artist and I think anyone who writes music, especially if you've gone a long time without like collaborating as much, just having something that you've written um, and put like, you know, emotion into it when it gets, you know, reconstructed. Cut up. Yeah. Surgeried. It's, it can be like hard, but that's worth adjusting to for sure. I remember my first time working with a real producer and having a song or songs just cut to shit like that Mm. like entire sections that i had spent like forever on just gone songs rearranged and uh and at the time i remember it stinging a little at first but then within 
a day or two, I forgot that those sections even existed. Yeah. And I just knew the song the way that it now was. And those were great decisions. Yeah, exactly. In in my experience, it'll be like, I'll hear a demo of something that I did. And it's like, yeah, well, of course that makes sense. We can't have like two minutes in the middle of the song where it's like clean guitars. Then it goes into a really like slow post-rock section because like the song just is lost all momentum. And like, that's the kind of thing that now I'm just like, yeah, duh. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder <laughs> yeah like you know you might like come up with like some crazy like midsection the way like you're changing key and it's going through all these elaborate changes and like you're so proud of this piece of music and it might still genuinely be a good bit of music but is it something that everyone is going to be excited by and is it fitting the song maybe not so i think that that's what a good producer is for or a writing collaborator and, it, and obviously you have to know what project you're working with. Like with Silosis, there's a bit more room for progressive stuff and unconventional song structures and that kind of thing. So I, I'm fortunate that I can still, if I want to, you know, do something a bit proggy or whatever, I, I can do that. But um, it's, it's cool having, you know, different outlets. Because if you do find yourself like, oh, I just want to write a song that's like straight to the point, I can do that with Architects. If I want to do something that's more like proggy or whatever, then I can do it in silosis so it's having having two very like very different bands is yeah beneficial because i i spend so much time creating that i need outlets for all of it you know i think a great producer their job is to figure out what the artist needs and then help them facilitate so if the artist does need a pop situation happening uh because that's the best thing then the producer will help them do that but if it's an artist that just needs some coaching as in yeah this part this should be way heavier why don't you guys do more of this thing that's so cool yeah exactly you know, just like some advice uh, a great producer will know you know which artist they're working with yeah or you just need to like say to them like this is what we're going for <laughs> yep we're not we're not trying to write you know a, the black album or whatever I don't, I don't know so you see your career as a guitar player songwriter who can record rather than a producer who can play guitar yeah yeah i i i still feel like uneasy saying i'm like a producer or like or a mix engineer because I, I still have a long way to go i think till i'm to where i'm happy but i see myself as yeah a guitarist do you think that what you do is kind of like the new definition of what it means to be a guitarist just having some sort of decent skill at being able to record yourself no, because I know like some really good players who just don't have a clue about recording or don't don't do any. Do you think they should? I think they should for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I think like everyone can That'd be helpful. Yeah, it's like what we were talking about earlier, and just in, in terms of like tracking to a click every day. Like that's that's just the most helpful thing ever. Like I even if I'm not you know viewing what I do as practice when I'm in here, because most days of the week I'm just or whenever I do get free time, I'll be in here writing. Uh, all day and when i'm writing i'm doing it on my own so i'm doing program drums and a click track so i'm playing to a click all the time and it's only beneficial so everyone could benefit from recording themselves you hear that everyone start recording yourselves all right josh i think this is a good place to end the uh, podcast i want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us today thanks for having me i really enjoyed it